0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Cute as a Button Bryant. There's Jerry Squee Roland. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast, the cute edition. That's right. The science of cute. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. I've been wanting to do it for a while. I know.
0: I remember like that was one of the first things you ever said to me when we met in the office. (laughs) How cute you are? Well, no. We were in the break room and I saw a picture of a uh, baby panda. Sure. And I just started to melt. Yeah. And you went, hey, jerk. (laughs) You ever wonder why you think things are cute? Yeah. I bet there's science behind that. Maybe we should talk about it one day.
1: And look, here we are. Yeah. What was that? 12, 13 years ago Something almost? like that. It took yeah. a Yeah. Man, you really responded to that aggression, didn't you? I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, Chuck. Yes? Have you ever heard of Mickey Mouse?
0: Oh, I know several mice, but I've never heard of Mickey Mouse.
1: You've only heard of Mottled Muck? Yes. And Ricky Rouse? Mm-hmm. Um, well, let me tell you about Mickey Mouse. He's actually the mascot of a very large entertainment corporation called Disney. Don't oh, know. Uh they own Walt Disney World, Walt Disneyland. Uh I think ABC owns them. They're they're affiliated with ESPN they're very very big. But they have this mascot, it's a mouse mm-hmm. and his name's Mickey. That's weird. He's he's kinda of big, especially abroad. Okay. Um, but if you look at Mickey today, you think, wow, that's a really cute mouse. Doesn't really look like a mouse. He's black and white, basically, or brownish and black. Um, but also his features are very much not mouse-like. Mm-hmm. But if you were to go back and look at the beginning of Mickey, I think he's from the 1920s, late 1920s. Uh, in his earliest cartoons, he looked a lot more mousy. Yeah. A cartoon mouse, but he had you know, pointed cute. features, not nearly as cute. Yeah. But then if you fast forward about 10 years later, by uh, the time 1938 rolls around, he's in something called The Brave Tailor. That Mm -hmm. was one of his shorts, um, where I think he defeats a giant or something like that. Um, He looks full-blown Mickey Mouse, but he looks way cuter. And they had done a few things to him. They had, like, made his eyes bigger. They'd made his features rounder, less pointed. Um, He had big gloves and big shoes now, these kind of plump and oversized features. Mm And he had gotten cute. And the scientist Stephen Jay Gould, who really deserves his own episode like Carl Sagan does, um, just a really interesting dude. Um, he said that Disney and his animators had stumbled upon something that uh, the zoologist and ethologist Conrad Lawrence mm. um, termed schema. I think I got that right, right? Uh, yeah, Kinkinschema. schema. Very nice. Um, But, like, years before Conrad Lawrence ever did, that they had just kind of naturally figured out, like, oh, this can be way more appealing if if we exaggerate these particular features. And it turns out what they had done is make him literally cuter by the very scientific definition of cuteness.
0: Yeah, so Lorenz was an Austrian scientist and in the 40s came up with this. And this made me feel quite good about myself. Actually, looking over this list about <laughs> physical qualities that—and um, it's not just a person; it can be an animal, as we'll see. A lot of this is animal-based, right? But these things, uh, these traits, that would evoke a positive response—a very strong positive response—and they are a large head. Mm-hmm. That's me. Um, high protruding forehead.
1: Yeah. I've always said you have a five head. <laughs> if anything, it's it's
0: average. Uh, Large eyes, sort of average. Chubby cheeks, bingo.
1: Oh, you should make the cheeks make a sonic appearance. Very nice.
0: It's been years. Still as moist as ever. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Uh, Chubby cheeks, small nose. I have an average nose. Mm -hmm. Small mouth and chin, I'd Mm -hmm. say average. Okay. Short, thick extremities. I actually have sort of skinny legs. I'll carry my weight between my chin and my belt. Okay. Plump body shape, Bingo. (laughs) <laughs> right. So, I am
1: scientifically half cute you are very cute I mean that's definitely that's not even up for debate, really. I used to get called cute by the ladies, not handsome but cute. There's Apparently, a difference I saw that um Paul McCartney hated being known as the cute beetle, yeah, probably sure. for the same you know the the same differences that you just mentioned, probably. But the, the the like what you just said, this list you just you just um, you rattled off. That is Lawrence's uh, kinkin schema, or baby schema, or babyness, which is basically like if you put all these things together, you have what amounts to what we humans consider cute. And you can extrapolate, like you were saying, not just onto babies, but onto other animals and sure. even onto like cartoon characters, Kinda like all, this all animals really. Yeah.
0: You either have these things and you're regarded as cute or you don't and you're not.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good point that you can you can not only have this, you can also lack it. And that that has that modulates our response to whatever that thing is.
0: Yeah, and it's also important to point out that this is these are guidelines, scientific sort of guidelines and truisms, but not Across the board, like some people, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and cuteness is. Sure. So some people might look at a baby, uh, I don't know, just some sort of weird reptilian thing that has none of these traits and think it's super cute as well.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. It it is kind of subjective. But uh, there does seem to be – If not universal, a widely tapped into sense of what's cute and what's not. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So let me rephrase that. The person that thinks the baby lizard that has none of these traits is cute, they probably also think the panda is cute.
1: Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. They're probably not disgusted or just totally (laughs) turned (laughs) off by the panda. Look at
0: that dirty, ugly baby kitten. Yeah. Ugh
1: and so so Lorenz was um he compiled this list based on his observations, and I guess from what I read, like this whole study of cuteness is pretty young as far as scientific investigation goes, so you know we're still figuring it out, it's still developing as it goes along, and some of the studies involved are fairly suspect, but there seems <laughs> yeah. to be this <clears throat> this kind of general acceptance of yeah. Lorenz's Kinkin schema, which is that it was just, it's so, it's so obviously correct that I, from what I read, some people just haven't even investigated, which is good and bad. Um, Lawrence was a, a, a behaviorist, and he, actually we met him first in our animal imprinting episode, which was a really mm, good one. That's right. But he studied that. Um, but he put this all together to study behaviors, and what he was studying is exactly how babies um, get adult humans who may not even be their parents mm-hmm. to respond to them in a way that um, that adult wants to take care of that baby. And what he what he came up with was this kinkin schema, this cuteness, uh, what he said unlocks um, innate instincts in humans that basically triggers like Automatic behaviors like, oh, uh, I want to make sure that you stay alive, so I'm going to go find you some food. That kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and it corresponds to helplessness <clears throat> at birth. Yeah. Uh, there's a direct correlation between um, how cute you look and how how little you can get by on your own in the animal kingdom. Um, yeah. Most mammals are born very small, very helpless. Uh, many months, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years of care before they can go off and kind of do their own thing.
1: That's called altricial.
0: What, to take uh,
1: To being born helpless, you're altricial.
0: Yeah, so uh, if you're altricial, you're probably almost 100% more cute than an animal that is born that can kind of run right out and do things on their own. Probably not as cute.
1: That's precocial. So you yeah. got altricial and precocial, right? And and the thing is, is like, it if you step back... Like, it's just so easy to just overlook this. And if you really start to think about this, cuteness has been this adaptive, I guess, evolutionary trait that's just been hiding in plain sight until Lorenz really put his finger on it. But if you step back and think about it, uh, there's no there's no innate, or there's no reason that a baby has in and of itself to evoke a, a response in a human, even its parents, um to want to take care of it. But it needs that because it is an altricial species. Humans are an altricial species. Big time. They'll they'll just die out if you don't take care of a baby. And if enough babies die out, eventually humanity dies out. The species dies out. So it's an adaptation to make somebody want to take care of you. And that is what Lorenz figured out. That cuteness is that trigger that we find babies cute And it makes us want to take care of them. And that is one of the most mind-blowing things I know. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you look at human babies, uh, human babies are born pretty early in their development. Like if um, all things being equal, human babies should probably be born six months later than they are. Yeah. Uh, But they're not. Human babies come out uh, very early. Uh, They come out before their little fontanelles are even formed. It's disgusting. And they need a lot of care. And uh, they're they're born that, like, human babies are small so they can fit out of the birth canal. Their little noses are cartilage so they don't get broken on the way out. Like, you know, babies should have larger heads and should have, like, uh, not should, but you know what I'm saying. Fully formed, like strong noses, but they wouldn't be able to to come out of a lady if that was the case.
1: Yeah, because our brains are, have have developed to be so big, and our craniums have developed in in response to that. That like we're evolutionarily speaking or, or developmentally speaking, we're underdeveloped when we're born, even though we're we would have been born at like a normal a normal gestation period for a human compared to other species. It's yeah. like, this kid's out a little, this kid hasn't baked fully. You know what I'm saying? And so that really makes human babies, even among, you know, other mammals that are altricial, super dependent on caregivers to make sure that it survives.
0: Yeah. So like a human baby's head is really large compared to their body. Um, and these are, you know, these are some of the, the cuteness traits that we mentioned early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, their eyes... You know, your eyes don't really grow. Your eyes are about the same size.
1: I didn't know that. Did you? Yeah. That's oh, why when no you idea. look at
0: some babies, you're like, look how huge their eyes are. Yeah. It's just because they're on a little tiny face.
1: It makes sense, but I just had never known that you're you're born did with your, your eyes basically the <laughs> size
0: that they're going to be when you grow up. I think if you really work them out, they can beef up a little bit, though. Okay. Lots uh, of blinking. <laughs> we mentioned those tiny little noses, super cute and very bendy. Mm. Um, Their little baby cheeks and everything's soft. So you can get out of that birth canal mm-hmm. and, you know, formula and mother's milk keep you kind of chunky and full. Um, yeah. you know, Nobody's
1: going to put a baby on a diet. No. Good Lord, no. <laughs>
0: um, the skin is very loose and soft. Uh, so, you know, if you go through a big gross spurt, it doesn't, you know, split open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. Sounds gross. It does. Uh, and then, you know, the way babies move, it's it's just very cute. They're, babies are awkward and they're clumsy and – um, they don't, like, have the definition to, like, manipulate these these muscle groups very well yet.
1: Yeah, and it's awkward and gawky and super cute. All of this stuff together is cute to us. And it raises the question, like, <clears throat> did babies evolve, human babies evolve, to fit our definition of cute? No. Or did our <laughs> definition – actually, I've seen both. Oh, really? I've, I've seen both. So it makes sense that, like, our definition of what's cute and what we respond to as cute would be based on – the average human baby, but you can also take an average human baby and tweak like digitally Mm -hmm. um, a picture of a a baby and tweak it to maximum cuteness. And Mm. so there's this other idea that, okay, maybe originally our idea of cuteness was based on baby features, but the cutest babies would um, logically get the most response mm-hmm. and would be and the, the, most the most likely, yeah, and would be the most likely to th- survive and thrive and go on to reproduce. So it is entirely possible that we have a spe- as a species have gotten cuter over the over the eons because of selection of the, for the cutest babies.
0: Well, and that's been critical to our survival. Um, yeah. You know, it's, uh, when you see something like that, when you see a baby chick, you your instinct is to pick it up and cradle it and make sure, you know, that it, uh, a tree branch doesn't fall on it. Right. And the same goes for babies.
1: Yeah, because they share a lot of the same similarities, the same kin-kin schema. I wish that kin wasn't in there. I wish it was just kin-den schema. We'll call it that then. I, I don't want to. We, we I, get things I, wrong I all the time. We do. We do. It's usually not purposefully, you know. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but... um that same set of traits can apply to other animals. It was like you were saying, you know, animals that fall into that set of traits appear cute to us, and we want to save them. We want to take care of them. Um, Like a little baby giraffe Mm. has huge eyes. Its features are kind of small compared to a larger adult giraffe, which uh, even adult giraffes are awfully cute. But one of the things that a baby giraffe is going to get you with is hobbling around trying to stand up that first
0: time. and they hit you with those little shaky legs. Look out.
1: Yeah, and that reminds us or reminds some very ancient part of our brain of a a human infant, you know, like developing its motor skills. So it it seems like it's not like our brains are confused, like you're not looking at a, a baby giraffe, like, look at that baby human. I love it. It's just it triggers the same part of the brain that seeing a human infant does um, because of that same set of characteristics.
0: Yeah, like there was a study I found on Mental (laughs) Floss from 2009 where scientists uh, reported that uh, people in the study that viewed really cute images of puppies and kittens Mm -hmm. performed better in the game of Operation, you know, the the kids game, than people who saw less, like, that saw pictures of grown-up dogs and cats. So it just innately triggers this care response. It's really, really interesting.
1: Yeah. And so what Lorenz called that innate releasers, that, that you see a cute baby and the cuteness acts as an innate releaser, which triggers a set of inborn instincts in every human to take care of that baby. And that apparently hasn't necessarily borne out, but there is a lot of, or there's an increasing amount of documentation about how Seeing something cute affects the brain, and I propose that we take a, a, a commercial break and then come back and talk about that afterward. Agreed. We'll be right back. I it's a commercial break. Sure. Jeez. <laughs> Nine out of ten didn't surveyed. It's like an after-school special all of a sudden. So um, I think
0: before we dive into what you're talking about, I do want to mention the, the, the wolf puppy thing. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty uh, interesting is that there is an example of uh, a co-evolved trait uh, with the human brain that triggers that cuteness response. When you look at wolves, wild wolves, apparently, and these were pre-dogs basically. right? Um, they don't have this muscle called the uh, – here we go with some Latin, I guess. Uh, levator anguli oculi uh, medialis.
1: You just made a demon appear. <laughs> I did. Oh, my God.
0: Um, this muscle they don't have in their eyebrows, and apparently that is the muscle – That can make what we think of as puppy dog eyes. Dogs uh, that came later did evolve that muscle and then were bred for it uh, Mm -hmm. because it made people melt inside. Yeah. Uh, So that's why wolves, which is interesting, like wolves have that sort of scowl and they can't help it. But then I looked at wolf puppy pictures and it's pretty cute. But maybe it's not in the eyes. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know what it is either, but that I think that raises a really good question that also Chuck kind of points out it like uh, this this research is still very young and there's contradictory information coming in and a lot of it is just based on intuition and that kind of thing. But there are like you said there's that there are people walking around who think like that baby lizard is super cute. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like it it's not entirely universal. And you know, maybe those wolf puppies have some other traits that have nothing to do with the eyes that that are hijacking your brain. The, the point that stands out to me is that, that that caregiving instinct that Lorenz pointed out or whatever whatever weird brain pathway we have um, that's triggered by seeing something cute is that it extends beyond humans. And I think that that kind of that, – that makes humanity as a species like that much greater in my opinion. That sure. Like that caregiving impulse – Can extend beyond humans. And I mean, that explains pets right there. Like, I don't think we would have pets if that wasn't true. Yeah. You know, I mean, we'd have like guard dogs or something still, but, (laughs) you know, not a pet.
0: There would be German shepherds.
1: There'd be nothing but. And they'd all be mean as as snakes. And we'd probably have snakes too that rode the German shepherds. Yeah. they still wouldn't be pets. Yeah,
0: baby snakes, not so cute. There's also that weird thing where something is so ugly it's cute as a young thing.
1: Okay, so there—that's a Japanese term. We, we'll talk about kawaii later, but there's something called kimo kawaii, which is called gross cute. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they—they—they've right. got it. There's something. They're like the Germans, but further east. They have like a name and a term, an idea for everything, you know. <laughs>
0: All right, we'll put a pin in that because uh, we did promise the science of cute. So we're going to have to look at—we're um, going to have to look at the brain and actually what's going on there. Yeah, and they've done that, of course. Um, they've put people in the wonder machine, and they have shown people pictures of baby faces to see what lights up. And when that happens, you get a really strong immediate response in uh, what's called the orbitofrontal cortex, which is where we regulate our emotions and our pleasure. And it's a really, really fast response, um, one-seventh of a second.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it doesn't take long. When you see that baby or that puppy or whatever, You know, it doesn't take you long to, to immediately – Think I need to care for that thing and hold that thing.
1: Yeah, because so that orbitofrontal cortex, it, it um, apparently has something to do with the reward system. So your attention is captured very quickly, and you get a little burst of of pleasure yeah. from seeing that that cute baby. And then there's another thing too that that ha, that came out of that 2009 study using operation that all of a sudden. Your attention is very much focused Mm -hmm. and you can complete tasks um, much better or at least remarkably better um, than you could without seeing something cute. So, it it really does suggest we have this inborn pathway to respond to something cute in a pleasurable way with warm feelings um, that trigger an ability, a greater, more focused ability to do something like, for example… Care, care for or feed a baby or that kind of thing. That's, that seems to be borne out. Like, Lawrence's innate releaser seems to be being discovered um, by neurology right now. Which is
0: interesting, though, because caring for a baby is not, in my experience, something you need that kind of focus for. It's not like putting together a, a little model house with tiny pieces of furniture. Uh huh. Um, it's just like, keep this thing alive.
1: Right, but maybe, maybe that's like, um, <laughs> rather than being like, Oh, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'd will i rather rake the lawn, the lawn instead. Right. Go, and you just stop feeding the baby oh, and go sure. rake yeah, leaves. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like your your attention to the task at hand right. is a little more focused so you're less distracted. Yeah. That's Different what Different kind of focus. Sure. Yeah. Um, Luckily, it doesn't take much brains because <laughs> there's a lot of non-smart parents out there. That
0: is true. Um, so in that response, that speedy response in the uh, orbitofrontal cortex when you see that baby, um, men and women both have that same spike, but I think women report stronger caregiving, which they chalk up to just gender roles, basically, and yeah. not necessarily anything to do with the brain itself.
1: Yeah, because the same areas light up for men and women, I guess, to the same degree. It's just self-reported as different, right? Right. And then apparently also, like, this this is not just um, parents who experience this, like a human being. Will or a typical human being will experience this?
0: Yeah, I mean that's the thing where, like, as an adoptive parent, you know, this is uh, my daughter is not my seed, mm. um, but Those I can't biblical, <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, but I can't like I have nothing to base it on, but I can't imagine a stronger connection or a stronger mm-hmm. instinct to care give. Totally. And um, so it's an it's an important trait, clearly, because like you've seen movies where. Uh, people find like a a baby like abandoned by the dumpster and that you know you run out and you know I suppose some people might just say call it in and say hey there's a baby over here I'm not going near it (laughs) but a human's inclination is to run over and pick that baby up totally and wrap it up in something warm and then maybe call the cops or whatever
1: Right, and like you said, like run over there, like the, the yeah. like a, an urgent thing that that your brain would just be like, get over there right yeah, now. This, the
0: helpless thing out there by a dumpster. Let's go get it.
1: Yeah, um, that apparently would come probably more from um, the baby's cry, which I guess also ignites like the same kind of um, pathway as uh, cuteness does, but it's a, a different – it's slightly different. There's not necessarily a reward. It's more like urgency, and they call that a biological siren, which which would, you know, get you over there really quickly, but it's not necessarily because you saw – you know, you, you thought about how cute the baby is in those swaddling clothes.
0: Right. Uh, sound mm-hmm. is definitely important. Like that same study, if you hear a baby's laughter mm-hmm. uh, or even a, the smell of a baby – you, your brain lights up in the same way.
1: Yeah. So, like, they, we're presented with the entire cute package of right. everything that's great about babies. Sight,
0: sound, smell.
1: They are really deeply manipulative, I think, is is what you're meant to take away from this episode. They are.
0: Just t- tiny little monsters. <laughs> they are. Saying, like, take care of me for 18 years. That's right. And possibly Wouldn't beyond be... if I'm Gen X.
1: Exactly. And was it Gen X or Millennials?
0: I don't know. I feel like there were plenty of Gen Xers that lived in the basement. you're
1: right. You're totally right. Or
0: maybe that's every generation. But we weren't coddled as much.
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) You're going to get us canceled. Oh,
0: boy. Uh, Yeah, so let's move on from that. Oh, wait. Here's another thing, and this is the saddest finding ever. Okay. Um, Oh, yeah. When they did this study, um, that that brain activity was diminished when they were shown baby faces – that were had some sort of facial disruption like a cleft palate and that mm. is really one of the saddest things you can imagine hearing.
1: Yeah, because I mean that would that would account for, you know, what I was talking about earlier about how cuteness is selected for that there's this like by no one's fault of their own but just through, you know, the evolutionary process of these these neural connections that were born that are ready to make like wanting to respond to something cute. If you're presented with something that doesn't quite line up with that kinkin schema, mm-hmm. um, that baby's going to have a much harder time getting that same response from uh, from somebody than just a, a, a traditionally cute baby. Well, Which it is, is brutal. It's extraordinarily sad. I think um, we need to do an episode on cleft palates too. That that stood out to me. That we haven't done that yet.
0: Yeah, or even worse, and you know, in ancient times, those babies would be walked out to the woods and left. You know. Yeah
1: for sure. You know, um, uh, Carl Lawrence apparently said that the Cupid doll, you know, our Cupid mayonnaise. Mm -hmm. So the doll that that's based on, if Mm -hmm. you take a look at its face, um, that in Lawrence's opinion, that was the maximum exaggeration that you could reach um, of Kinkin schema before violating it. And that afterward, what was beyond it was that uh, wasn't coined at the time, but what he was talking about was basically an uncanny valley. Like, there's, right. your, your brain would start to be like, wait, there's something, something is somewhat out of order here. Um, so it's weird. There's like a really, apparently, there's a set, a package of traits that make up what is considered cute and straying outside of that. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of uh, violates it in some weird way. It violates, like, this this pathway that we're, we're, we seem to be pre-programmed to have.
0: I didn't know mayonnaise was going to make an appearance.
1: <laughs> I, I, I did because I saw the QP thing. But before that, I had no idea either.
0: So cuteness is going to activate other parts of the brain. Uh, it's just not that super speedy response that you get in the orbitofrontal cortex. Right. Um, so if you're a parent and you have a brain— um, you're going to go uh, undergo a really kind of slow change um, as you parent and as you take care of that baby and bond with that baby yeah. as they grow into infancy. Um, you're going to still have that trigger of cuteness, but it's just going to be a slower response and more complex as far as your actual brain activity goes.
1: Yeah, and supposedly that co-evolves with the cuteness of a baby. Like a newborn baby is just yeah. But, like, you yeah, look at a baby at sometimes. six months, that same baby. Yeah, you have to admit, it's pretty infrequent for a baby to be cute right out of the womb.
0: Yeah. I mean, generally, they're little alien lizard-type creatures.
1: Sure. But wait six months, and that same baby is going to look awfully cute. Yeah, usually. So, <laughs> and within—right. And within that six months— um, you're going to have developed more sophisticated responses, caretaking responses, to that baby's cuteness. Um, it's pretty interesting that, like, they, they both start to gel around the same time. The babies start to hit peak cuteness, yep. and the caregiving stuff be- becomes more and more sophisticated. It goes from, I need to keep this baby alive to, um, you know, what college is this baby? I'm, I'm going to get this baby through college kind of stuff. You start thinking about that.
0: Right, and that sort of brings back what we talked about earlier as, um, like, that, that empathetic, compassionate response when it's not even your child.
1: Yes. It's very important. Or when it's not even from the same species. Right. And and like you were saying, you know, people tend to rate um, the species that are most altricial as the cutest because they need the most help. So, that pathway can be hijacked by humans – uh, human babies and other species as well, and by people who are trying to sell you stuff, as we'll see. <laughs> That's very true. Do you want
0: to take, take another a break? break?
1: Yes, Jinx. Oh, Alright,
0: we're going to take a break and talk about cute aggression, something that uh, we're pretty familiar with right after this. <laughs> All right, so I've talked before in the past about my wife Emily, and mm-hmm. uh, when she sees puppies and babies and other cute little things, she uh, she says stuff like "I want to, I want to punch that baby in the face. I want to squeeze the life out of it. Uh, I want to, I want to eat that puppy. Like some things that sound genuinely horrific." Yeah. Maybe not, I want to punch that baby in the face. That's a different <laughs> thing. I've seen thing. that somewhere. But it's a thing, and it's not just her. It's an actual thing. It's called cute aggression. Uh-huh. When you see something and you say, uh, you know, I want to put that puppy on a plate and eat it.
1: Which is, like you said, it's very weird when you step back and think about it. Um, and it actually, it's a, a very recent um, investigation. Like, I think 2013 is the earliest I saw. Um, and one of the people who are leading the charge into studying cute aggression is a Clemson psychologist named Oriana Aragon. Um, and she and some of her colleagues have really kind of are, are, are establishing this field of cute aggression. Mm-hmm. And the reason why Aragon is a pretty good social psychologist to be investigating this is because her specialty is dimorphous expressions. Which is contradictory emotional uh, indicators yeah. that don't really seem to go together but do because it's just so common, like tears of joy right, um, or nervous laughter, that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's a big one. And th- it seems that cute aggression kind of falls under that same umbrella.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because you say, sure, great, cute aggression, we've got a name for it. Uh, that doesn't really explain it, though. No. And... It's explained kind of like nervous laughter uh, or tears of joy. Mm-hmm. It may be a way of regulating something that's just too overwhelming emotionally. Yep. So when they study cute aggression, they show people the cutest pictures of the cutest things, see how the brain responds. And people who have the the really biggest uh, cute aggressive response, um, their brains are lighting up, but your reward system is also lighting up at the same time.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, but it's like an overwhelming reward response. Like you're just, uh, it's intolerable. Yeah. And so the idea is that your brain brings you down from that um, by implementing like a, 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 not complimentary, what's the opposite of complimentary?
0: Mm, You're a big jerk.
1: <laughs> that that kind of um that kind of emotion, like anger or aggression or hostility or something like that, yeah to balance it out and to bring you back down because it makes sense that if you were just sitting there experiencing overwhelming um cute overload, like you would you might not ever get around to feeding that baby, you might just be sitting there like with your tongue hanging out at the side of your mouth, drooling, yeah, you
0: know? it's interesting because like a lot of times. And I've heard a lot of other people say this, but, like, Emily will say, like, I just want to squeeze that baby. And mm-hmm. that's followed up with I can't even take it. Right. Like, I just can't even take it with this cuteness. Like, right. that's that's literally true. Like, your brain can't even
1: take it. It's yeah, too much. I thought, I thought it was cute. Aragon um, came up with uh, a way to measure cute aggression mm-hmm. um, by using bubble wrap. Yeah, this I didn't quite understand this. She would give, um, bubble wrap to people Uh and show them different (laughs) pictures. And the pictures that rated the highest in cuteness, um, evoked or led to the largest number of bubbles pop.
0: So the idea is like, if you see something cute, pop bubbles or just like, here, hold this. And you just find yourself popping them.
1: I don't know. I don't know that. I, I don't know actually, to tell you the truth, um, I think, yeah, I think it's more, it's meant to be like an unconscious thing. Okay. Like you're not supposed to be like, well, this is an 80 bubble kitty, you know? <laughs> sure. Nothing like that. Or it's just like you look down you're like, oh my God, there's no more bubbles left. This, th- that cat was so cute kind of thing. Okay, Makes sense. Um, I saw another explanation for acute aggression in that it's a response to a frustrated desire for caregiving. So mm. where um, where you want to go, punch that baby in the face but you know you'll spend a significant amount of time in jail if you actually do that. <laughs> yeah, sure. Right? Like that's that's where that would come oh, out. Like like that you can't do that. It's not your baby to go snuggle and cuddle and take care of. You can't eat so that puppy. You have to do it from afar. Exactly. So you have to do it from afar so it 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 comes out in this mixture of cute response and aggression or aggressive words or, uh, you know, that kind of thing.
0: Well, and that also kind of dovetails with the cute sadness. Right. Which is, I guess, Aragon coined that term as well, is where um, you see a puppy in a window and you go, oh, no, or, oh, or make a frowny face. That's when you see a lot, mm-hmm. when you see something really cute. Yeah. And her theory is that uh, kind of like what you are just saying, like that puppy is, is, uh, is in – the crate at the adoption place and you can't get to it or it's just walking down the street with somebody and you're right. driving your car and you can't get to it. So yeah. you're expressing a kind of a frustration that you can't get out of the car and squeeze the puppy.
1: Right. So you have to squeeze your sphincter instead.
0: But <laughs> I guess it comes out as disappointment though.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's, it it would seem to be a, ref, a frustrated a response to frustrated attempts at caregiving or frustrated desire to <laughs> caregive because you see something cute and your caregiving instinct is triggered or whatever you want to call it if yeah. you don't don't agree with instinct but there's nothing you can do about it cuz you're driving and that thing's going the other way so you can't do anything to to take care of it so you have to get that out somehow and it seems like anger and aggression is a a good way for it to make it subside quickly.
0: Yeah or But
1: again again I really want to point out here this is this is intuitive stuff this sure. is not stuff where it's like this study backs this up and this study backs this up yeah. from what I've seen every single study in cuteness and cute aggression uh involves about 150 college undergrads right. as your 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 uh study population yeah, and they're yeah. popping bubble wrap and stuff like right. that like it's still very <laughs> early in its research but it does make a lot of sense, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's that's accurate. Yeah, just, just take that and take that with a grain of salt, and, and, whatever that means. And
0: it's also, um, I'm not knocking the study, but it's also, you know, let's be honest, it's not the most important thing in the world.
1: No, no, it's, it's no. like
0: interesting to understand. It makes for good reading
1: mm-hmm.
0: on an, an internet article. Yeah, but uh, it's not driving like it's not solving a problem. You know what I'm saying?
1: I suddenly feel like we're standing in the middle of a vast glass house (laughs) and we have rocks in our hands right now. Oh boy. I think it's fun (laughs) to
0: talk about. I mean, that's what makes, I mean, this is perfect podcast fodder. For sure. Um, But like, I'm curious if this could be applied at all.
1: I, I don't know. I think maybe it's just one of those things where it's like, Now we understand this. It's documented. It's understood. So we understand humans a little more. And then maybe it'll open some door to some other thing that we didn't even realize was connected. No, there's value. You know, yeah. But I I totally agree with what you're saying.
0: Yeah. But I think you've pulled me in the other direction. Nobel Prize. Oh, good, good. Just send it their way. Good. So you mentioned earlier about using the stuff to sell things. Mm -hmm. And that is for sure true. Um, You can't, I mean, you look at any... Pixar or Disney cartoon or anime, certainly, um, you're going to see round babies and you're going to see huge eyes when you see pamphlets that uh, are trying to sell stuff or, uh, or try to get you to donate to an animal cause yep. or a children's foundation. Um, they're probably going to put a baby or a puppy on that cover that has the biggest, roundest face and eyes. Yep. It's manipulative um, but used for good generally
1: yeah yeah totally it's almost like um using music in the background of an ad you know like it's purposefully hijacking uh, a very ancient neural pathway that basically all humans have to get an emotional response out of you a positive emotional response and it might have nothing to do with with what they're trying to sell but you're you're now associating a pleasurable warm feeling with you know Mr. Sparkle um, <laughs> dishwashing detergent. Yeah. You know? When really it's just a a, a joint venture of Matsumura Fish Works and uh, Tamara Bucci Heavy Manufacturing Concern.
0: <laughs> um, like when they've done, um, they've done studies on like anti smoking campaigns for teenagers. Yeah. And they respond more to cartoon characters that are cute.
1: Which sounds a lot like Joe Camel, if you ask me. It's like the opposite yeah, of that. Yeah,
0: that's true. Um, but it does make sense. Like a teen is, might respond to a uh, list here as like a penguin in a jacket uh-huh. or a polar bear than, you know, some adult human like pointing their finger at you.
1: Yeah, like John Hausman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? To the teens.
0: Don't smoke.
1: <laughs> right. So... um yeah, it also makes you think, like, you know, since so many like cute toys or so many toys are cute, um, when you're buying like a plush animal, <laughs> has are you responding almost in like a, a, a an insane way to your cute caregiving response just being manipulated and like you're going to take that stuffed animal home and, and and give it care because it's just been activated in you? Is that really is that that seems to be what's going on when you? When you're when you buy like a a toy like that, I think so. That's interesting because then if you know if you see people walking around like that, you're like, oh well, you you've just been manipulated. Congratulations, kind of thing. Yeah, but also you can make the case too. Um, and I read a guy uh, uh, something by a guy named Gary Janosko, who is the Canada Research Chair in Technoculture at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Wow. And he argues that um, that same thing, that co- the commodification of cute, uh, say like by Disney, he also argues that National Geographic magazine was big into in getting people in, involved in caring about animals and nature. They really use cuteness, uh, especially in like the 50s and 60s, I guess, um, that it, it forms our understanding of things in a very specific way, which is this thing is cute. It's like a toy to me. I want to pick it up and carry it around and love it and hug on it, but in doing that, you really miss out on a lot of the um, the individual um, personality of whatever that animal is. Like you, like you trade respect for infantilism, right? Yeah. And like that—that that, that really stood out to me because I have to remind myself that Momo is like this sentient individual. Entity who deserves respect and to be treated with respect, not just picked up any time. She, you know, she looks at me a certain way and it sets off my cuteness response. Right, like I've really had to grapple with that, and luckily Yumi's like really aware of that because uh-huh. she has. She's always been a very small person, and she used to get get picked up all the time. So she like identifies with Momo on that level, um, and it's been like really. An exercise and restraint sometimes it' just be like nope I've just got to treat Mama like she doesn't want to be picked up right now kind of thing you know yeah but I thought Janoska Ginos- really made a, a good point that we we miss a lot of like what makes an animal an animal in in favor of just seeing it as something cute and a kind of a plaything in a way
0: yeah and if like there is no clear reminder that um you know I've always had dogs and multiple dogs and love dogs but when you see a dog, like, you know, go after a squirrel and catch it and eat it or mm-hmm. something, th- these are the reminders that, like, these are these are animals. Right. You know, like the same cute dog will also, you know, eat poop out of its butt if it could.
1: Right, or eat your face if you died on the couch and it was locked in the house with in you. In a second. Sure. <laughs> um, So we probably shouldn't finish until we talk about kawaii culture.
0: Yeah, this is the, the Japanese culture that is... Um, well, this says it best. maybe the greatest pop culture expression of cute uh, you think Pikachu, mm-hmm. think um like pop singers dressed as little sort of pigtailed schoolgirls mm-hmm. uh it's It's a very, very big trend in japan
1: It's huge like everybody has a cute mascot. Hello Kitties everywhere. It's just enormous. And apparently it kind of, like, grew and evolved and morphed over time, starting with this um, student protest movement in the 60s, where, like, the Japanese kids, like— um, just decided they didn't want to go to class anymore. They sat around and read manga, comic books yeah. instead and kind of regressed to back to childhood. Uh, and then that kind of developed in the 70s into a trend for cutesy, bubbly handwriting. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. that led to Hello Kitty. And then weirdly, it also made an appearance um, as, uh, what is it, Buriko women, which is very childlike um, women who adopted this this kind of demeanor um, to, number one, uh, cut off any uh, sense of threat that they presented when they entered the workforce, but also to kind of keep um, unwanted advances from their male colleagues at Bay too. They they entered the workforce as if they were young kids, little girls, giggly and all, all that kind of stuff. And this is like a persona that they adopted that eventually became this trend, this cuteness trend that's, like, everywhere in Japan. I never thought about the bubble
0: letters. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because I've always sort of wondered, like, why elementary school girls, it seems like, would mm. write in those big, juicy, round letters.
1: Yeah. It makes sense. It does. But that was apparently where kawaii culture came from originally. It was a handwriting thing. Interesting. Yeah, uh,
0: I was curious here at, at the end, I was uh, like, has science proven what the cutest animals are? Oh, yeah. And I did find something from Listverse and Jonathan Cantor, the top 10 cutest animals in the world, according to science. Mm-hmm. But I see nothing in the article about how science proved this. <laughs> Literally nothing. But I figured I'd read it just for funsies. All right. uh, number 10 is most baby mammals. Okay. Number nine is the slow loris. You ever see those things? No. You should look at some of these. In fact, I'm okay. going to go ahead and text you number one. Okay, please. Do. Right now, because, uh, and I guess I'll just send it to you and Jerry, since she's on our most recent thread. Okay. She'll be like, "What the heck is this?" All right, coming your way. So number eight is the meerkat, which I think meerkats look a little sinister, personally.
1: Yeah, I could see that because of the like they're they got the bandit masks on. Yeah.
0: Number seven is the koala.
1: Yeah. Did you just get that's that picture? That's what this loris looks like.
0: <laughs> no, that's not a loris that I sent you. Are you looking at a loris?
1: Well, what is this?
0: What I sent you? Yeah. We'll just put a pin in it. It's number one.
1: Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Uh,
0: number six is the Flapjack and Dumbo Octopode. Oh, okay. Um, piglets, number five.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Natch. Uh, the Fennec Fox, number four. That's the fox with those huge ears. Okay, yeah. They make those great sounds. Sure. Uh, the red panda is number three. The panda bear, the white panda, black and white panda is nowhere on this list.
1: Weird. Is, this guy's way off. Yeah. This must have been a list from Jimmy Science, his roommate. <laughs> According to Jimmy Science? <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, I think you mean James B. Science. Okay. Then, yeah. uh, number two is sea otters. And then number one, I don't know how I've lived my whole life without knowing that this thing existed, uh-huh. but the quokka, Q U O K K A. Oh, my God. Uh, from Australia. It's a small marsupial. Uh, same family as a kangaroo, apparently, in southwestern Australia. And mm-hmm. that picture I sent you, my friend, just Google smiling quokka, yeah, and you'll see this one picture of this quokka literally jumping, hands out, smiling at the camera lens. Like, give me a hug. Like, give me a hug. This is, and I think, I mean, you know, they said it's because they look like they're smiling, obviously. Right. Is one of the big reasons. But almost every picture you look at a Quokka, it's got this little
1: smile. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Hey, I have to say, based on the screenshot, you you need to charge your phone soon.
0: Uh, yeah, and that was even earlier, so. Oh, God. I get that same stress because I'm, I'm generally at least 50% guy. Yeah. And so when I see people do screenshots, if it has that red, yeah, oh, boy. I know. Stresses I can't even take it
1: stresses me out. can't even take it. So um, to finish up, Chuck, that the converse of what you're talking about, the cutest animals, um, the fact that they exist also kind of implies that there are non-cute animals that exist. Do you have that And that list? they're less likely to get our attention. Um, and as a result, there is a kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I also get the impression kind of serious group Called the Ugly Animal Preservation Society, oh. whose mascot is the blobfish, which makes a lot of sense. And their slogan is, "We can't all be pandas." Oh, I love that! Yeah, so they're looking out for the ugly animals that we're going to wipe out because they're not cute.
0: Well, I know that is a big deal when it comes to conservation. Mm-hmm. Is that that people can uh, conservationists have a much harder time uh, getting money and stuff? I mean, we talked about it in our zoos episode. Yeah. Like, that's why they they lead with giraffes and elephants and stuff like that.
1: Was that the episode? I know we talked about it before, and they were like, look, man, just leave us alone. This is the important stuff because it saves the other stuff. Yeah, exactly. Boy, look at that blobfish. That looks like a— I
0: know. Oh, man. Yeah. Ugly cute, maybe?
1: Yeah. uh, uh, Kimo kawaii. If Kawaii sounds familiar, that's probably because you heard it at the very beginning of the Gwen Stefani song "Holla Back Girl. Oh really? Where she sees a bunch of Harajuku girls in Japan and goes, Kawaii. Nice.
0: Yeah. That blobfish look like look like it's constantly saying, Okay.
1: <laughs> I know. They should've <laughs> called it the Eeyore fish. Poor but thing. blobfish definitely works too. Oh man. Um, Well, since we have wrapped it up with the old blobfish, uh, if you want to know more about the science of cute, just start looking at cute pictures of the kuoka. Sure. That's a great place to start. And since Chuck said sure, that means it's time for listener mail. Uh,
0: I'm going to call this. I'm getting called out here, and it's something I haven't thought about. I got Mm -hmm. called out by a couple of people for different reasons for saying... Uh, this phrase, you know, unless you live under a rock, then you know blank.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, one person said, hey, that just makes me feel dumb because I didn't know about one of these things.
1: Sure. I think that's the point, right? That's your intent. <laughs> no, I don't want to make anyone feel bad.
0: Oh, okay. But this is a different kind of response and uh, well worth reading. Uh, hey, guys, making my way through a backlog of episodes, and I noticed a thing that seems to pop up from time to time in your descriptions of popular culture and products like Hang Gliding, Etch-A-Sketch, and Rubik's Cube, you make comments like, and if you don't know what one of these is or looks like, get out from under your rock and go look up a picture. Uh, Someone who has been blind since birth, though, my problem isn't that I've been living under a rock, but rather that (laughs) pictures to me are worth zero words. Yeah, I really got you, (laughs) got me good. Mm. Uh, I grew up in the 80s, so everyone had a Rubik's Cube, and I played with my fair share of them, even though I couldn't solve them. For many things in life, though, if I haven't physically touched it or had it described to me, I only have the faintest idea of what it looks like. In fact, I was a music uh, music education major in college, and it wasn't until my sophomore year at age 19 that I touched a brass instrument for the very first time. Uh, Mm. The French horn still fascinates me. I've enjoyed uh, listening to your show for years, and I've learned lots of visual information from you, from what giraffes look like to uh, fashion choices of punk rockers. I wanted to make you aware of this, though, You can help people who can't look at pictures, whether uh, we're blind or whether we're on the road driving in a truck, and we don't want to pull out our phones to look at pictures. Uh, Thanks for years of learning and laughter. Appreciate the work. Warmly, Ryan from Minneapolis. And Ryan, (laughs) I have nothing to say, but great point, and I'll do better.
1: Very nice, Chuck. I don't think there's anything else you could say. You know why? Because you're a good person. And not a jerk.
0: That's right. And now I will try and describe things to the best of my ability, which I, might not be great, but...
1: I think you did a good job with the Kawaka okay. description. Smiling wrote it? <laughs> yeah. It looks like it's smiling. That's all you need to know. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, if you want to take Chuck or me to task, that's there's not a lot of sport in that, but if you want to do it anyway, that's fine. You can send it to us via email. Wrap it up and send it off to Stuff Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,
0: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.